0: Hi, this is Cliff Click and welcome to today's podcast. Today I'm going to revisit um, some hardware software co-design I got to do about a decade ago at Azul Systems. Um, Azul Systems built custom hardware for running you know, big business Java fast. Um, the chips were fab by TSMC but completely designed, you know, fabless semiconductor house if you will, designed by our own team. Um, they, they were targeted for running business logic Java where you're expecting a large count of threads. So we had a large core count, up to 54 cores on a die, up to 16 die cache coherent. So a box about the size of a dorm room you know, refrigerator would show up at 864 cores. There was a very weak memory model to help them you know, run efficiently, um, but it would meet the Java spec with the right set of fences being inserted. We, instead of going for NUMA, which is non-uniform memory access, we went for UMA, flat, mediocre memory speeds. And that's because business Java is very irregular computation. We didn't think it likely that the, uh, you know, with the high core count or the high die count that the actual memory controller that was being touched on by the, for holding the memory was close to the core that was running computation. We did have very clearly supercomputer level bandwidth at that time, modest. Uh, per CPU caches, we just have run out of space for bigger caches. So 16KI, 16KD cache for each core, groups of eight or nine cores which share a 12 meg L2. The cores were all classic, in-order, 64-bit three address risk chips, with obviously a much lower core you know, clock rate than an x86. But each core could sustain two uh, cache MIPS outstanding and each L2 could also sustain 24 prefetches outstanding. So the box as a whole could handle you know, like 2,300 outstanding member references at a time. Um, to go with that supercomputer memory bandwidth, we had throughput like nobody's business. Um, hardware transactional memory support built in, special ops for Java for like read and write barriers for garbage collection, array addressing and range checks, fast virtual calls. And we're really, we're targeting for thread level parallelism and managed run times. And so their thinking was, you know, how did we get here and why did, why did we do this? Well, Java was going to replace COBOL and that was sort of, you know, Y2K pushed the, the COBOL issue really hard. And everyone realized that all the old COBOL they were running, the developers were actually literally dying of old age. And they just couldn't get new people in on the COBOL side. There was a big drive to replace COBOL with Java everywhere, and there are a lot of app servers, WebSphere, WebLogic, JBoss, Beans of various kinds. You know, J2EE was very popular back then. Um, And so we were seeing a lot of transactional and task-level parallelism with large thread pools and workless throughput-oriented computing. And CPUs were hitting the power wall, you know, widespread predictions of lower clock frequencies, and you know, from 2010, the clock rates have essentially been stalled, but higher core counts are a commodity and, and you can get a lot higher core counts. Synergy here is to run uh, you know, all your transactions or your tasks on separate cores. You know, every thread gets its own core, basically. But what else can we do besides pushing more cores? Because you know, who buys custom hardware, right? You have to have a really good reason. 10X, 5X price performance ratio wasn't good enough. We also knew we could push the size of the heaps we were expecting big heaps. So we we're just going to have the whole, you know, 64-bit heap is the only Java we're gonna run. Things up to, to at that time, half a terabyte was huge. We're, that was planned in from the get-go, between half a terabyte to a terabyte was, you know, the norm. Um, GC support. So people had known for a long time about using read barriers for garbage collectors and you get a better idea, you get a better GC algorithm out of using a read barrier than a write barrier. It completely changes the GC model you want to run. And the the problem is that a reads are about five times more common than writes. So a read barrier runs five times as often as a write barrier. Um, and so it has to be one fifth the cost to be competitive in terms of you know, your normal throughput, not counting GC. So we got hardware support for read barriers. Um, hardware transactional memory is a hot topic. And we're expecting to see a lot of complicated task-level parallelism where there's a lot of shared, especially on caches, locking going on. No one was able to rewrite applications with some sort of atomic notion yet. So we decided we're going to do some sort of hybrid software hardware support for lock collision and remove the locks with some combination of those two. So as part of that, we had this notion that we're gonna expect locking to be an issue. We've got a lot of threads, we got a lot of slow cores, we got a lot of active you know, processes running, we're gonna take the same block with slow cores and contended locks an issues. How do we make this better? One of the things we observe is that we can make uncontended CAS fast. So what's when you say CAS, it's compare and swap, it's the unit of atomic update. All modern processors have something like it Uh, It's a special instruction you have to use when you're running with multiple threads to share across the threads reliably. The observation here is that most locks in Java are not contended. And this goes back to this notion that Java programmers for a long time didn't know how to handle concurrency very well. And so if you had a race bug and couldn't find it, you threw in a lock. And if you, you kept throwing in locks, so the race bug went away. Most of the locks were junk. They were not useful. They were never contended and they just cost you some overhead, but maybe not too much. Um, so you kept throwing it into your problem, went away. So for us, we're gonna see lots of locks. So we want uncontended CAS, the unit that makes a lock, to be really fast. So our CAS does not uh, have a memory fence built into it by default, which on an X86 it does. And that's because we have uses for no fencing CASes. But in our case, we needed a CAS and a memory fence and we could pipeline them both. If they hid in your L1 cache, it was one clock pipeline for both the CAS and then the fence. The no-fence CAS thing comes around where every time you use a CAS to, for instance, do lock, I'm sorry, performance counters, then you force a memory ordering on a internal JVM performance counter, which has no Java semantics for memory ordering. And you force the processor to go slower because of the memory ordering. So we want to do that. We wanted to have, you know, cheap performance counters. Um, Lock-free algorithms also can be in a place where they know they don't need any ordering on this CAS. They just need an atomic update. Um, We did support a couple different flavors of memory fencing, um, you know, load to load, load to store, store, load, store, store, and no other ordering between the memory ops except for the fence. So the memory ops could be completely out of order in any way they wanted to. And we relied on software and not on, for instance, the Intel's, you know, very, very strong thread ordering model or total store order to get the orderings correct. Um, we had hardware transactional memory support from day one. And this, is, uh, and this is this idea that you put in your L1 some extra tag bets and nothing at all in the L2. So the L2 is shared between multiple cores and the hardware guys are very clear, you, thou shalt not touch the L2. But the L1 had a couple of extra tag bets. And what you did with them is that when you started a transaction, you flagged lines in L1 as being touched speculatively, either for read or for write. And then if you lost a line out of your L1, that was tagged, you aborted instead. You aborted the transaction instead. So if you were reading lines um, and you had to read them under speculation and you lost it, then somebody else was writing it and your transaction aborted. If you were writing lines and you lost it for whatever reason, um, instead of writing that bit back, you threw that line away and those writes never happened and you aborted the transaction. And then the, the, you know, the key here is that nothing else would abort you. So function calls were okay, TLB misses. It did. You know, user mode level, the first level walking TLB were okay. Nested locks were okay. Nothing else would abort you, and so it was a, it was a very strong transactional memory support model. We would routinely see thousands of instructions make it through a, a transaction, but it turned out that that was not actually very helpful. No dusty deck speed up from lock collision, and that's a whole other talk. Basically, you know, you have to rewrite to break data dependencies that are true data dependencies, and, and it turned out that garbage collection was mostly the main bottleneck, not locking. Okay, so we're expecting memory bandwidth to be an issue, um, obvious you know, risk have lots and lots and lots of cores, and streaming allocation is hard on your caches. So we added this support for just in time zeroing in your cache called a CLZ, and it's not impacted by frequent fencing for locks, unlike the IBM DCBZ and drove the ver- verification guys nuts. But what it does is it lets you uh, not read dead data when you allocate a new line. So this gets in this funny notion I was talking about in another podcast where if you allocate objects, this touches a line that's never been in your cache for a very long time. It's a guaranteed cache mess. And the first thing you do is you stomp it partially full of zeros, enough to fill the object up and you don't stomp the rest of it because you don't know that that's where you, you know what the rest of the line looks like. So the hardware doesn't know if you're gonna stomp the rest, so the hardware goes ahead and fetches the line which eventually all gets stomped to zero and it was a read of a dead data. It was useless. So the CLZ instruction reduced our actual memory bandwidth totally measurable by all kinds of statistics by 30 percent. It was a complete reduction of memory bandwidth by 30 percent. Huge, huge, huge. We put in support for stack allocation, um, which will let you lower and not have dead objects get written back out. It's much more effective than escape analysis in large programs. I was easily getting 70% or more of objects all stack allocated on a large, busy app server, um, but it wasn't good enough to beat the, the garbage collector we eventually got to. We also had support for, you know, like I said, lots of cache misses. There was a big jump when we went from the first model chip, which only supported one hit under miss, to having two, because it turns out that most of your performance is how fast can you run from cache miss to cache miss. You have enough cycles in the core processor and memory's too slow, and so you're just going to run on and on until you hit the next cache miss, and then you're going to stop. So if you can run two cache misses in parallel, then the cost of the cache miss is effectively cut in half. You run to the first cache miss, and you get it started, and then you run to the second one, and now you're blocked, but two are running in parallel, and you get you know two for one, basically. You know, we were generally targeting giant throughput, so four memory controllers, striped memory access, they're all Pseudo randomly hashed so you didn't get hot spots no matter what your sort of access pattern was unless you happened to reverse the pseudo randomness. Um, successive addresses would cycle through all chips, including the prefetches the the JIT was throwing in, so that you could in fact have one core drive a lot of memory bandwidth if there wasn't other cores you know working on it. And then like I said you know no no fast local memory versus slow remote because on a, on a 16 die system, 15 16ths of all your memory is remote. So we didn't even bother. We just said it all goes the same speed. Yours all loop back actually on chip. The stacks, the caches were great for all kinds of things, you know, the stacks and the new objects. And and we prefetched for, for allocation, repeat fetched for memory access. We did all kind of prefetching things. We used that bandwidth. We had short cache lines to avoid false sharing. And then we had little stuff, all kinds of fun hacks. Uh, faster virtual calls. We could, we could do a, a virtual call without reading the object header. And the, commonly it's the case that you don't actually ever touch an object header. So it got you to get away from some amount of cache misses. Turns out we kept the metadata you needed and in, in the pointers. For garbage collector, we used it for, G, uh, for virtual calls as well. So we called it class ID. A little bit on that more in a later. The array math stuff and the range check ops all did the right kinds of things for Java. Turns out that you have an integer index into an array that's more than 32 bits long. You have to sign extend it, then shift and add. X86 doesn't have that instruction. They have, you know, shift and add and sign extend, or two instructions. One is sign extend, one is shift and add. So we got an extra instruction. da da. da, da. Um, we used uh, variable size, register windows for fast function calls, cooperative self suspensions. We had a, you know, built in safe pointing mechanism because we could save point thousands of run- we're expecting to save point thousands of runnable threads. Um, and in fact, in practice that worked out really, really well. And then along the way, I had a lot of fun talks with the hardware guys, where I'd say stuff them like I want an instruction that does X and the reply would come back. Oh, I can give it to you in three clocks. And here are the three one clock instructions that do X. And now tell me that it's show me that it's important to do X faster than three clocks, and I would have to look and say, eh, it doesn't happen that often. Okay, we'll make it three clocks, fine. Um, and then in return, I got things from the hardware guys. Like, we can directly execute most byte codes. And I was like, don't bother. It's been tried before. Make me a good JIT target instead. Jitting is much, much better. Give me a nice JIT target. So I got a 64 bit, three address risk chip to go JIT to. Really nice. We can put in fancy branch target buffer, B2B caches to speed up virtual calls. Totally from the hardware guys. And again, don't bother. Software managed inline caches remove nearly all true uh, virtual calls. You do a test, a hardware profiling of a large, busy Java VM running hotspot, and you look for the actual times you use that jump register which goes to an unknown target um, it's almost never it's like one in, in hundreds of millions to billions of instructions and that's because inline calls like really work so it's more important to get the basic stuff right make this a good jIT target so we, we kind of went down to this core philosophy what can we do easier in hardware than in software and what can we do easier in software than hardware so in hardware we can do detection of all kinds of fun things um, hardware, transactional memory, detecting cache lines are getting evicted is really hard in software, totally cheap in hardware. Great GC barriers. Again, detecting when you fail some sort of invariant stack lifetime escape detection, same thing, fail some invariant detect when an inline cache predicted virtual call fails. Yes. Give me an instruction for that. And then the cache line zero, which does not order with memory so that I can pre zero lines on my L one without having to do any sort of coherency traffic out on the buses. But in the software, all the complex fix up logic. You don't want to do that in hardware, no register rollbacks on the hardware transactional memory fail. All the memory state got wiped by the, by the hardware, you know, because it got saved in your cache and then aborted and the soft, the register state software took care of, right? Relocating object for GC, hardware guys volunteer. We're like, no, don't bother. Give me a cheap, easy, good, you know, mem copy thingy. Branch target buffer. No software inline caches were great. Don't do direct execution of bytecodes, Let me jit that kind of thing. So the the next step we had to look at is, how does this look to the end customer? Um, Because the end customer is really not gonna buy a funny OS too, along with funny hardware. So we made this thing plug and play. And literally, we could go from, you know, 10 minutes from walking into your data center to having a max score tech jbb benchmark running on, right there on their, on their hardware because we give them a VM that was a, a thin hypervisor VM that would jump into our hardware and run it on the hardware. Um, and we could just speed up old stuff sort of in situ. You just changed what your JVM you're running and suddenly things got faster or not according to whether you're single threaded or highly parallel. Um, and the other problem we, we were looking at when we were looking at user visible OSs is that we couldn't handle like big kernel locks. Most of the existing schedules at that time really not prepared for hundreds of CPUs running thousands of runnable threads. And we totally were there. We, we, we routinely did tests where we were running 100,000 runnable threads on, a, on nearly a thousand cores and worked great. And we wanted sort of harder OS performance guarantees, moving large CPU counts between processes, you know, pinning to one process or another to give guaranteed performance, uh, pinning memory between processes to give guaranteed performance, allowing the extra memory to be used by JVM temporarily, but he has to give it back in a timely fashion if the person who's guaranteed that memory demands it. It's all kind of funny stuff there. Um, we did a lot of virtual memory checks for GC, so we needed bulk, fast TLB remapping and shootdown ops, which we didn't get out of the existing uh, OSs. And then we wanted stuff like ECC in our caches, chip kill and error reporting in you know, hardware error reporting and OSD configure caches and CPUs and stuff. You got nearly a thousand cores, you might expect a couple of them were dead, you see deconfigure a dead core, right? So we ended up rolling basically our own microkernel OS here's a question I get a lot, why didn't we, uh, why didn't we roll our own CPU, why don't we just go buy someone else's sort of CPU um, hardware design? There are a lot of them out there at that time, but we couldn't find something that was multi-car, 64-bit, had ECC on the caches that was for sale. And we knew we were going to have to redesign the L1 cache and the load store unit both for the hardware transactional memory and for ECC and to keep that weak memory model for scaling. And we wanted parity in the register file because we had a hell of a lot of register file bits. And we needed metadata stripping on the load and stores because we had these extra bits on the pointers, right? And we needed read and write barriers and array ops and virtual calls. They're already hacking the core CPU design. And by now, you're redesigning like more than half the CPU. So we just gave it up. The instruction set itself was a basic non-issue. We did a, an instant easy port from GCC to the target. And then the JVM you know, hotspot was readily portable and I was the expert on the porting it. So I ported the hotspot over to the target in relatively short order. We, we roll our own CPU. In fact, one of the things we could do is change an instruction design early on and instruction description as it was targeted by The hardware guys for the hardware set went into a simulator for that instruction. Well, it went into the same build bits for the JVM so the hardware guys could tweak an instruction and it would just show up out of the jet down the road without me having to touch anything. It was pretty slick. What else can we do here? we got lots and lots of CPU cycles. So anything we can do on another core is basically for free. So we have really big, compiler thread pulls and could furiously in the background. Obviously, we're doing background GC. Turns out that GCs typically trash your cache because they do this very irregular walk throughout your whole of your heap. So you give them their own L2. So all the GC threads run on a different L2 from regular user mode guys. And, and there's no speed race on a GC. So the fact that they're cache missing constantly makes no difference. The, you know The GCs are going to be slow and they're going to be slow, but they're running in the background as long as they're Fast enough to keep up, it's done. Um, and, and in fact, actually we prefetched in the GC and it's pretty easy to prefetch as well. We did background profiling and background page zeroing. Uh, CPUs would doing hot spinning on I.O. where they would just you know spin hard at the hardware buffers waiting for the next you know packet to come over the network, and then they would go scatter, gather, and and hand it out to the to the user mode processes. So in that era, we we hired a hardware team. It was a it was a post dot bust, and we had a lot of good engineers who were on the street. We hired a VM team. We hired an OS team. We ported to GCC and Hotspot to new chip, and we wrote a simulator for the hardware. And we eventually booted the OS on a simulator and we ran hotspot on a fast x86 at about 20 megahertz simulated ops a second um we were running spec j app server under hardware simulation a lot of cool simulation tools got built true uh, um, sorry data race detectors and cache miss rate cache layout visualizer. One of the great tools I've always asked for um, that I had here at this time was, you know, performance hacks was give me a cache layout visualizer. Show me what is in your cache and how it's laying out because we had a lot of issues with not enough associativity in the caches, throwing things out of the cache for no good reason. And a little random coloring of stacks and and TLBs and thread local buffers and all kinds of tlabs, sorry, um, would fix a lot of problems there. So, so that was a really useful tool. Have a cache layout visualizing some big speed ups out of that. Um, turns out the simulator had to run on a true multi CPU x86 to get true data race detection running in the port. Um, and data race detection was crucial because we had such a weak memory model. We were assuming that anybody who wasn't doing good, you know, good careful Java programming was going to have issues. So first cut Vega one chip came back from TSMC, with, you know, 24 cores on a chip grouped in three clusters of eight sharing an L2. And, you know, all the bits are there, Um, all the cast associativity and everything else is the interconnects are all running first fun thing was that we found bugs in the hardware where we were getting bleed out from the even register bits into the odd register bits. So we changed the JIT to only JIT to the even registers for a while until we got a fix back from a hot fix back from TSMC. We have all kinds of fun special ops for doing little bitty things that are really common in Java on an x86 and ended up, you know, getting a lot of fun savings on on instruction counts and stuff. You know, looking at it under simulation, it was looking really sweet. But when came back, you know, we both had to do this even-odd register thing, um, but we also had a problem where the branch was decoding into offset bits as registers and as we had over, We had to do that problem. We had to fix some chips by, we had to over-voltage them to get them to hold their bits properly so that chips would cook to death in about a month. But during that month, we got the OS up and spinning. I mean, you know, the OS up and running, we got Hotspot up and running all on the on the custom hardware, and when we got the, the new ones back from the, uh, you know, from TSMC, we were you know, two weeks to getting uh, a Java dash version. And then, you know, a few months after that for running all the Java benchmarks on the planet. So it still took about a year to get the system robust. There were a bunch of true data race bugs. And that was the that was the major issue from the software side, the hardware issues, but software side, no one has seen a system this out of order and concurrent before uh, before we had all kinds of conflicts in the L2 that we fixed by eventually getting that, that cache layout coloring thing figured out. Um, turns out that a four-way associative L2 sharing eight four-way associative L1s is okay. After a little diddling, it is not the common cause of lines getting kicked out of your L2. The virtualization layer was almost good enough, but there are a lot of bugs that had to happen there, including, you know, OS file timestamps being variant between the existing Different systems, and then we had lots and lots of fun uh, performance fixes throughout the year, um, and eventually we got to you know first paying cut, first beta, first paying customer, um, you know really big bank using it, then another really big bank, and you know looking back over it, so what of what sort of worked and what didn't now? So eventually it topped out, and the real issue was we didn't have enough speed and the single cores. You know, what works on the chip really worked. Plenty of bandwidth, lots of CPU cycles. The cache miss rates eventually achieved, um, but the CPUs were slower than we hoped for. And that was just the limits of the silicon technology and the budget we had to do that to make that go fast. Um, and we just couldn't make things fast enough on a single chip. We did have teething problems in hardware for about a year with weird low frequency DRAM bugs. A lot of issues that were masked by ECC constantly correcting, but that did force the OS error reporting of the hardware to become robust early. DRAM screening turned out to be a nightmare. Can't get a power supply that's reliable as clean. You know, we went to these vendors and said, we want a 2,500 watt power supply. And they said, Oh, it's in our catalog. Take one. So we bought one, we took it home and we put a 2,500 watt load on it and it burned up literally right there. So we bought a bunch more and they all burned up from all the different vendors, all the ones we got. So we had to go back to all the vendors and say, what does 2,500 watt power supply actually mean? And they're like, well, you know, it sort of means that, um, yeah, right. It means something. I don't know what." So it took a while to get a power supply would actually do what it claimed to do. We had lots of fun issues with the OS scheduler to work through, um, you know, scheduling a hundred thousand runnable threads on nearly a thousand cores is not a trivial task. Doing it efficiently, doing it well, um, being able to spawn as many block threads as once. If for whatever reason, you've had to take a stop the world halt for a GC cycle or whatever, and you have stopped a hundred thousand threads. Now start them all. How fast can you get them running again? What is the, you know, what is the ripple in the pond from when you, you hit the go spot in the first core somewhere and then he wakes up his neighbors and the neighbors and the neighbors and it spreads and spreads and spreads. We turned out that uh, uh, we had lots of bugs in the standard hotspot from Sun. There were lots of places where Sun was failure, failing to correctly f- flag uh, OOP reads that we had to have read barriers on, but also OOP writes and then just plain old data race bugs. So we were, you know, basically I was at a race with Sun with uh, Steve Goldman, who was working on the the Itanium port at the time, uh, who's to find the next data race bug between us. And we were swapping data race bugs back and forth and back and back and forth. A lot of a lot of fun stuff like to get to you know, hardware transactional memory because we had to get stability first and then faster speed up, faster startups and the compiler threads and better GC pause improvements. You know after a while, the GC pauses are not due to the JVM, but they're due to your kernel. And so you had a lot of kernel hacking you had to go do to fix you know, what looked like GC pause points. But eventually we got hardware transactional memory turned on. Most of the initial bugs were all around getting stuck in live lock where you'd be endless retry fail loops. And you need to give up and go to the OS sooner? And eventually we got it turned on by default in shipping and shipping in customers. And the answer was most of the people, most of the locks that were contended were contended over a true data race that you couldn't do any sort of transaction around. And many of the true data races were stupid. They were, for instance, a Java level counter that was getting incremented under a lock and you could run that counter in parallel, but like the mod count on some of the early hash table functionality, no one cared for the mod count. It it had no useful thing. And so, you know, your your hardware transaction memory couldn't let you run uh, concurrent threads through a hash table because of the mod counter. And you had to hack the the Java libraries to make that possible. And that was the standard Standard case for hardware transactional memory. You had to do something stupid and low-level to make it possible to run in parallel. And there was no good support to feedback to the developers of Java to say, here you have a, a data dependency that's going to prevent concurrent access through this locked region. Are you sure you want it there? Or would you rather do something else instead? So, alright, let me, let me wind this down here the gc is, is you know ended up working really well when i left it and then it got even better in a minute here so the gc when i left it was 500 gigabyte heaps no sweat 35 gigabyte a second allocation rates sustaining like 10 millisecond max pause times you know really good really incredibly good numbers first time installed a customer the standard, you know, install processes, put the box in, strip all their old GC arcs, double their default heap size, and you run and they've never seen ever GC problem ever again, just run flawlessly. We had this internal profiling tool we call it RTPM now called Zing. Customers demanded it after I, but I just built it for myself. It was just bring out all the guts of a core JVM into basically web pages that you can sort through and surf through and it gave you, you know, key insights into what the JVM was doing and where performance is going and not. Oh, we've picked up all kinds of real-time performance monitoring everywhere. Yeah, let me wind this down here. So, so we ran out of steam because we couldn't get the clock rate fast enough. And, you know, sad as it is, that was sort of the end of the hardware. But not the end of Azul or the the software. Azul eventually migrated over to an x86. We got uh, user mode TLB handlers put upstream into the Red Hat uh, into the to the Red Hat builds, and then we run sort of a stock Red Hat build with a bunch of kernel tuning flags, and you know with our funny TLB games, and then we have a read barrier on x86 that runs in you know two ops plus also a funny TLB game. And with that combination on the much faster x86 chips, now Zul seeing things like max GC pause times in the low microsecond range, hugely faster again, but that's that x86 being just stupendously faster. All right, well, I guess that's probably enough for that. It was a really fun time. I'm totally glad I did it. Um, I, I just was, it was the most fun time of my life and I'm really sad the hardware didn't pan out, but, but like I said, I had a great time and I would do it all over again. And with that, I'm going to have to say thanks and be sure to visit my blog at cliffc.org slash blog and have a great day. Bye bye.